You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Elisa and Yvette, both of whom are national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Yvette, we have missed you. Welcome back. Thank you. Our guest tonight is Jamil Jaffer, who is an amazing national security attorney here in Washington, a friend of the cast, and whose bio, were we to recite it, would consume the entire show. All right. Everyone should know that Jamil served in the Bush administration at the White House and at DOJ's National Security Division. He also served in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as the Republican chief counsel. So, Jamil, we're just glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Tonight we're going to do a news roundup because there has been a lot of national security news, which means national security lawyers have been dealing with a lot of issues. So let's just jump right into it. Jamil, the facts just continue to unfold in the case of the president's approach to Ukraine. And we're recording here on October 8th, so I'm sure we're going to, this this podcast is going to be obsolete as right. of October 9th, but we're going to try it anyway. <laughs> what can you tell us? So, you know, look, I mean, obviously the big debate is uh, did the president try to trade um, political gain uh, or, or, you know, personal political gain for uh, U.S. policy, right? The question on the table is between pages two and three of that transcript or the suggest, you know, the so-called transcript of the call uh, where uh, the Ukrainian president says, you know, I really want some javelin missiles. And the president's response is, yeah, I want something too. I want you to look at this question of, servers and DNC servers in Ukraine. A little bit of confusion about whether it's a DNC server in Ukraine. Not sure what the DNC would be doing having a server in Ukraine, but the president's a little confused. And then goes on to talk about later on in the call about Biden this and, you know, Burisma and the like. And so, um, you know, the president said, look, I'm really worried about corruption. Um, in fact, went on national television and said, not only did he call on Ukraine to investigate the corruption of the Bidens, but called on China uh, to investigate the corruption of, Biden, of the Bidens. Strong and so, U.S. allies, right? Right. So it's it's out there now, and he's made it public. Forget phone calls. He's declassified the transcript. He's declassified the whistleblower complaint. Um, and now he's said it on national television. So it's there for the American people to judge, um, you know. Is this the right thing for a president to be doing? And uh, the House will be will be conducting an impeachment inquiry. Um, and if they vote articles of impeachment, the Senate will be sitting as a jury uh, with the chief justice presiding to determine whether the president engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors is not a defined term. So we'll see what happens. All right. So we can drill down and just get a couple of details. Yeah. The latest over the weekend popped um, with Bill Taylor and Gordon Sondland. So can you just tell us a little bit about them and why they're involved? Because apparently, this is what I've learned in the news, these two gentlemen are going to be very famous soon. Yeah, well, I mean, they're famous now, right? I mean, so Bill Taylor, a career diplomat at the State Department, uh, the ambassador to Ukraine at the time. Um, Gordon Sondland, a, a political appointee, a big donor uh, to the president, uh, ambassador to the European Union. Um, he's a and hotelier. Then, uh, he's a hotelier. A hotelier. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. And a um, and then Kurt Volker, right? Um, who is the special envoy, uh, part time, you know, special government employee, uh, part time special envoy to Ukraine uh, or for Ukraine matters uh, in the State Department. Now resigned um, and was the executive director of the McCain Institute. So the three big players in this in this part of the conversation. And then of course the president's personal lawyer. Rudy Giuliani, who was who was running around town, um, has been on every TV channel possible, talking about 
what he did um, in Ukraine. So, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's... Uh, he had affidavits. Yeah, he had affidavits. If, if, it was a, if, it was a, if it was an episode of Veep, you wouldn't believe it, and yet it's real life. Yes, but some lawyer has to deal with this somewhere. Well, a lot of lawyers, apparently. So, you know, I mean, a lot of lawyers that we know, you know, uh, the general counsel of CIA, Courtney Elwood, uh, was the first person to hear about the whistleblower complaint. She took it to John Eisenberg, the National Security Council. They then together called and made a criminal referral of the Justice Department to John Demers at the National Security Division. All three of them I've worked closely with. Um, and then they referred it to the criminal division, to Brian Benchkowski, who um, is married to a friend of mine, a, co- a former boss of mine, and uh, and is also a friend. So, you know, these are all serious people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, yeah, a lot of lawyers running around. Right. And right now they're grinding the enamel off of their teeth. Um, okay. Well, do you want to talk a little bit just briefly about what the major, um, like what, what was the criminal referral about? What are some of the active issues, just high level? Yeah. I mean, at a high level, the, the, the core question is, you know, is this, uh, you know, it is against the law to solicit a contribution for a foreign national, um, and is the first question is, is there a campaign violation here? Is the president soliciting a campaign donation, an in-kind donation of a corruption investigation? Um, because uh, the, from the, a, the legal standard is thing of value. Right, so thing of value. Doesn't do money. Right, doesn't do money. I mean, you can't get somebody to paint your campaign headquarters, right? This is obviously far from painting campaign headquarters, but... You know, there have been debates in the in the on in the election about whether um, this was uh, this was a problem. And and remember that uh, Bob Mueller sort of laid out a a predicate for uh, a suggestion of campaign violations when he indicted the Russians involved with the Internet Research Agency uh, for conspiracy to defraud the United States of the enforcement of the U.S. election uh, election finance laws. And so there's at least a working theory under which at least Bob Mueller thought he could bring charges against Russians. None of whom will actually, of course, ever show up in the country and charges that will never actually be heard in court, um, other than before the grand jury. And so, but we'll see. I mean, this is this is the issue. And at the end of the day, remember, none of these charges have to be. There's no criminal issue that's going to be brought into court. Likely, um, uh, what's where this is really going to come to play is is this a high crime and misdemeanor? And again, there's a historical sort of understanding of that at the time of the founding. Um, and we've had three examples of prior presidents that have been considered for impeachment. So there's a historical record to do this on, but not a lot of definition. It's really a political debate, not a legal one, about what the House finds a high crime and a misdemeanor and what the Senate's willing to convict on. So just to be very clear, yeah. you can impeach president for yep. things that are legal, yes, but not, uh, but but impeachable. Right. So, so that's a debate, right? It doesn't have to be illegal for sure. It doesn't have to be a violation of the federal law, right? To be a high crime and a misdemeanor, it can be something short of a federal legal violation. You don't have to have the standard of proof that is required um, in a federal criminal court. Um, and and it's you know, I mean, I guess not really a jury of Donald Trump's peers, right? We're talking about a hundred U.S. senators uh, from around the country of diverse backgrounds. Um, so you know, it's uh, we shall see. Uh, what happens? But at the end of the day, impeachment is political, not legal per se. And and conversely, you, yeah. the president could commit a crime, but it would not be impeachable. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. So it's kind of fascinating because at least three or four people who were interviewed referred to it as just not a good look, uh, <laughs> as opposed to something right. criminal. Okay. All right. But let's uh, so flash forward from an hour ago uh, this morning. The president and or we heard that the president is going to pull out of Syria and he's made cut some sort of a deal with Erdogan, um, who is the president of Turkey. 
Um, the significance of that is that there is a border along the north of Syria near Turkey, which has been sort of a transit point for I ISIS fighters and is presently where a lot of those individuals are being held in prison by the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, so lo and behold, now Turkey has said um, they might go in. Can a president do this? Isn't this within his commander-in-chief authorities as set forth in Article 2 of the Constitution? Unquestionably, the president has the authority to do it. The question is, should he do it? And the answer to that is an, un is an unqualified no. In fact, there's been some criticism on the right and the left as far as this course of action, correct? It's a bipartisan I objection to... Yeah, I don't think there's... I don't think that I've heard yet one elected official uh, or one appointed official, at least that's not in the current administration, who has defended this policy decision. Um, as far as we know, DOD and State Department were not aware the president was going to do this. He made the deal on a call. He announced it by tweet. Um, this is not unusual uh, in this administration, um, but it doesn't mitigate the fact that, you know, these are these the Kurds who are ultimately going to be massacred as a result of this by the Turks um, are the ones who won the war against ISIS. Let's be clear. The president has tweeted about uh, we defeated ISIS. We helped with the defeat of ISIS, certainly. We have about five to 10,000 troops in the region uh, that supported uh, the efforts, but we did not fire shots. The people who took the weapons and fought the war against ISIS were the Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces, largely backed by the Kurds. And they are the same Kurds who are about to get massacred by the Turks because of our precipitous decision to pull out. And uh, it is a fact that SDF is holding all these ISIS prisoners in particular camps. And I don't know what the president's envisioning, but apparently he got some sort of promises from Erdogan how they would be executed. It's not entirely clear, but it almost sounds like he's imagining that they won't pivot from prisoner retention to defending the northern border, that there'll be some sort of exchange with Turkish forces at these prison camps that will be more in the nature of a shift change. Yeah, it seems unlikely that the, that the Kurds are going to go down without a fight. Um, and as a result, the fight's likely to take place in the area surrounding these camps. Uh, that's going to cause huge issues. Um, and even if the Turks were to take complete possession of the, of the, of the entire camp en masse, um, it's not clear what the Turks would do. Remember, it's not like President Erdogan is some you know, huge ally of the United States. Remember when he was elected, um, there was a concern that he was from an Islamist party. Um, he has not taken the most moderate positions. In fact, he has largely allied himself not with our, us or our NATO allies. He's allowed you to align himself with Russia. Um, he's not been a good actor in the region. This is not a friend of ours. Um, although we like Turkey as a nation, uh, Erdogan is not our sort of buddy. Uh, and so the decision to uh, to hand over a bunch of hardened Islamist fighters to a Islamist government in Turkey seems like a, another poor decision. From a foreign policy perspective, at least, legally, the president certainly has all the authority in the world to do what he's doing. Is there anything Congress can do to react to this? Sure. I mean, Congress can, you know, try to tactically oppose the president, say you can't withdraw troops. I think that is a very hard position for them to sustain. The president would veto that. Um, they'd have to over, override a veto. And even if they did, what would they do about it? Right. Are they going to withdraw funding for withdrawing the troops? And then what? I mean, so he, you know, engages in a in an act that uh, that that sort of ignores uh, the various budget laws that require him to execute the laws as passed by Congress and the, and the appropriations passed by Congress. Um, presidents, including President Obama, have done that before and, you know, told Congress to go pound sand. And Congress hasn't been able to do a whole lot about that. Um, and so I think the president's likely to do what he wants. If he starts losing support, though, of the Republicans in Congress, which 
pretty much has been universal today, right? Mitch McConnell has come out against him. Lindsey Graham has come out against him. I mean, all of his all of his traditional allies, Liz Cheney. Um, it, there, it's been very, it's been almost unanimous. And so, um, I think the president has to probably look at this in the context of an upcoming impeachment fight. And not clear how much Republicans' foreign policy views are going to play into that. But this isn't good with a Republican Party that he needs on his side um, as he goes to war with Democrats over impeachment. Wow. Uh, While the president unquestionably has the Article 2 authority to make these military decisions, are there any concerns at all brought up by the somewhat unusual process that this went through? I mean, look, the president is entitled to his process, uh, you know, uh, limited though it may be in this case, as it appears to have been in this case. Again, we don't know. For all we know, the president had extensive conversations with his national security leadership. There's not a lot of it around. I mean, there's very few people in 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 confirmed positions. Um, so there's a lot of acting folks in place. Um, and the president has, you know, removed his national security advisor, just recently appointed a new one. Um, the DNI is gone. Uh, the secretary of defense is gone. Uh, you know, I mean, the list of the list of empty positions is larger, particularly in national security, than in than the list of confirmed positions. And that's not because they're being held up in the Senate. It's because there just aren't nominations. Um, and so uh, the DNI is acting. So. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to know who the president consulted, uh, given the DOD wasn't aware that he was making this decision, at least according to press reports. Um, it seems likely he consulted the one person he listens to, which is himself, um, and maybe, you know, who knows who else. Um, and here we are. And so um, it it's unclear how this will play out. But, uh, you know, the president, look, the president's been known to reverse himself. It's happened before. It wouldn't be the first time. And so maybe he'll find a way to to change this trend. But right now, the Kurds are crossing the border into northern Syria uh, with uh, with uh, with land and air forces, um, and uh, the the beginning of a of a humanitarian catastrophe is about to take place, and it's going to be our fault. Wow! All right. So, but uh, you mentioned earlier that the National Security Advisor John Bolton, um, who's always been known as a firebrand for years and years and years. Um, he resigned or he was fired, depending on who you ask. So what precipitated that exit? And um, I also assume that any national security advisor serves at the pleasure of the president. Um, but he is now beginning to talk. Uh, and he said a few things that are not necessarily um, flattering to the president. So what happened there? Well, look, I, you know, John Bolton, I think, um, I think the president perceives that John Bolton led him down into a box canyon, right, a, a place with not a lot of outs. On, on Venezuela, for example, um, the president thought he was going to get a quick win. Um, he was going to support Guaido, and they were going to push Maduro out, and he was, gonna, he was almost on a plane leaving town, um, and, uh, and then he didn't. Um, and, you know, we sort, of, we, we sort of fought to less than a stalemate. You know, Maduro has largely won that fight, um, and the president, I think, saw that as a defeat. I think the president saw um, our aggressive posture on Iran uh, that he, uh, he, he sort of— announced during the campaign, but then walked back for a couple of years and then, you know, sort of went forward again on and now feels like maybe he's in a box canyon there. Um, so I think the president felt like he he didn't feel like his interests have been served by Bolton. There was never a real alignment between the two on views, right? Bolton is a strong, aggressive advocate for America being forward-leaning in the world uh, and having a forward-leaning military presence and doing things uh, and getting in our enemies' faces. The president, while he talks a lot like that, has never really taken that view. He's more of a fan of, like President Obama, ending endless wars, focusing here at home, um, you know, talking about, a, you know, a, a, an America foreign policy that has us involved in the world 
but we don't really have to do anything about it. So in a lot of ways, President Obama and President Trump are aligned on that perspective, right? Talk a lot about America's role in the world, but not be willing to sort of put meat behind that thing. And John Bolton is just not that guy, right? John Bolton's view is, you know, you got to have teeth behind your your uh, force if you're going to talk about it. You got to put a little oomph behind it. And that was not where the president was. And so it's not surprising that they parted ways. Um, you know, the president's entitled to his national security advisor. Um, and uh, and we'll see if he's got one. He hasn't found one yet in the last, you know, two and a half, three years that he's been in an office that he likes. So, you know, we'll see. And this is a great transition to talk about North Korea because John Bolton has been um, very outspoken on his view that the North Korea, um, you know, uh, uh, engagements were not as successful as the president had hoped. Um, and it, the, just last week, it uh, looks like the, or that last week or just a couple of days ago, um, it looks like the nuclear talks with North Korea have um, been scuttled. Uh, and so, um, what do you think is happening there, and what authority would the president have to negotiate a treaty if if they are to get somewhere um, without congressional ratification? Yeah, so I mean, well, obviously we we had the example of the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama signed with Iran, or didn't sign actually, rather agreed to uh, informally with the Iranian leadership, uh, not even in a signed document. So there's sort of evidence that you can you can do a deal with a foreign nation. Um, without sort of going through the treaty process. Uh, Congress, uh, in a bipartisan way, opposed that deal. Um, uh, the forced the president to submit it. He didn't want to submit it. Uh, if you recall, President Obama refused to submit the deal to Congress. Congress had to pass a law um, and threaten a veto override, which they would have gotten. Um, a law that we worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he ultimately did sign that law and ultimately did submit the agreement. Uh, both houses then voted in a bipartisan fashion against the deal, um, ultimately not with enough votes to get legislation on the president's desk, but um, enough to make clear that he did not have the support of the people's representatives in the House or the Senate. Um, and the president, I think, would likely face a similar situation if he made the kind of deal to date that he's envisioned with North Korea. Um, you know, he's talked about the North Koreans giving up their nuclear weapons, but the deal he agreed to in that first meeting, that beautiful deal that he talked about, um, was actually significantly worse than the Clinton-agreed framework uh, back in 94, which he rightly criticized. And so, um, you know, it uh, it's, it's hard to explain um, what he might get out of the North Koreans now because they see him as being willing to negotiate a deal that's not particularly good for him. Um, he does have uh, the the capability to negotiate a better deal. Um, you know, he is the great deal maker, and so he's got the potential, right? And so I actually think the pulling out of North Korean talks and ending them is a good move. Um, it shows North Koreans that we are not willing to just take any deal um, and that we're going to wait for a, for a better deal. I think the president was right to put pressure on Iran um, and, and, and seek a better deal than what President Obama got. Um, and so we'll see how that plays out. Obviously, it's, it's, getting, it's making tensions increase in the Middle East. Um, and we've seen the physical attacks on Saudi Arabia. We've seen the cyber attacks on Saudi Arabia um, and potential cyber uh, aggressiveness by Iran against us. I think you'll see more of that. And, uh, but unless and until the president gets aggressive and says the Iranians, no, we won't take it, says the North Koreans, no, we're not going to negotiate a, a, a worse deal than the 94 grade framework. Um, you know, our enemies and our allies, our allies are not going to trust us and our enemies are not going to fear us. Um, and that's where we are today, particularly in light of the Kurd situation where uh, these people who fought on our behalf are now being abandoned um, and, and left to what is going to be a pretty bad slaughter by a very capable military in the, in the Turks. Okay, 
All right. Well, that was quite a roundup. Um, we thank you so much for coming by, uh, Jamil. Um, before we close out, we're going to remind our audience that you're going to be speaking at the upcoming annual review of the field of National Security Law Conference. The committee is holding that this November in D.C., and we would love for you to give us a quick two-minute rundown of the topics that you're going to be covering so our listeners uh, know what you're going to be saying out there. Great. And, uh, you know, our panel uh, is going to be on on defending forward uh, and the uh, sort of new posture that U.S. Cyber Command is taking in light of the legislation that Congress passed uh, at the end of uh, at the end of the last year, so it's going to be an exciting time to talk about sort of the more offensive parts of cyberspace and cybersecurity. Uh, and I think we'll have a great conversation. It'll be sparky like this uh, podcast. Uh, so tune in uh, to uh, to that to that event. Come uh, and join us. I think, and I think it'll it'll be eventually available online. But you should come in person. Uh, nothing like watching the discussion of persistent engagement and defending forward. Uh, live and in person here in D.C. And also, all you young lawyers out there, it's a great networking opportunity, especially uh, aspiring national security lawyers who are trying to break into the field. Lots and lots of luminaries there. You can get lots and lots of LinkedIn's and business cards and uh, and get your foot in the door. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming in today. And, and thank you for listening to National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and the articles we referenced on all of today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to the podcast. Plus, you can find information about that upcoming annual conference, including the registration link. It's going to be on our website and in the notes. And our early bird rates for this conference will end October 24th. So don't wait to sign up. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.